And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for these moments to focus on our Savior, to lift up our voices in praise, to recognize that he is the Lord of Lord and Lords and the King of Kings and deserves our our total commitment, our lives. We recognize, Lord, that there is coming a day when every knee will confess, or every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because all will recognize who he is, but for the vast majority, it will be too late. It will be not a confession for salvation, but an acknowledgement of justice and that the judgment of God is right. Lord, I pray that in these days as you continue to spare us that we will make a difference and impact in the lives of those who are lost, that they will bow their knee and confess with their tongue a salvation confession before it's too late. And I pray, Father, for those of us who belong to you, who perhaps it's been a long time since we bowed our knees, in humble respect and submission, would you carry us there today, Lord, from your word, teach us your ways, and may we Submit to your word, to our lives today. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Well, perhaps you're getting to the place where, although we just celebrated the blessings of the Lord to us over this past year and a half, you're getting to the place in your lives where enough is enough. You know, I was thinking about this weekend, of course, marks the 20th anniversary of that horrible crisis that occurred in New York City. And I was thinking about the Sunday after uh, churches were packed with people. Sunday, 20 years later, with a crisis on us, the churches generally aren't even meeting capacity that's permitted. Twenty years ago, someone from the outside messed around with us. Twenty years later, we're messing around with ourselves. Oh, sure, there's a There's a virus. But the greater concern is how we're treating each other. So a lot of us are just thinking, you know, I'd like to get out of this as soon as possible. Get back to normal. We're going to have a lot of work to do to get back to normal. If we even do. 
And, and we say, you know, can't God just fix this? Yes. <laughs> yes. We, we know that. But he probably won't fix it quickly. And so we're going to need some faith fuel for the journey. I think the text that we're going to look at today will help us with that. There's immense value uh, in the history of the scriptures, retrospectively, to help us to understand the ways of God and what is probably happening right now as well. As I was preparing for this message in 2 Kings chapter 6, I was reminded of the things God has said in Deuteronomy. In particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, they're actually just verse 2, the Lord explains why he escorted his people into the wilderness for 40 years and why he might keep us in our current situation longer than most of us would like. Let me read it to you. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Times like this for God's people are always purposeful. They are always permitted by the Lord. And it gives us important insight here in terms of what God is up to. He's looking to humble us, to make sure that if we have been straying in the areas of self-dependence, independence, that we will realize and recognize that we are not able in our own resources to manage what's going on around us. And he's also testing our hearts to see if we will run after the ways of the world, look for fleshly solutions, or whether we will obey the commands of the Lord. Our heart is the place, the central place, where choices are made. And, and we, you know, we've been able to tame a lot of things over the years since Deuteronomy was written. Man has subdued and marshaled a lot of things. But we find out that there are things that we can't even see that we can't control. It humbles us. It tests us. Will we continue to default to our own abilities, our own resources, our own human solutions, our own shortcuts, our own arrogance, or will we wait on the Lord? 
Will his word guide our ways or will the noisiest voices steer our lives? These are sifting and sorting times. This is hopefully to establish groundwork for our teaching this morning. To just establish the way God operates. He's looking for who is really dependent on him. Who is really trusting in him. Who is really obedient to his word. Some of us are fading away spiritually. He's looking for who is real. The false security of our slick spiritual veneer is being ripped up to see what is underneath. What is at the core of who we really are. If we'll pass the stress test of God's scrutiny. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you are navigating this life with just you, you will fail the test. If, on the other hand, you have embraced the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life through faith in Jesus Christ, you will pass the test. So that's why I've entitled this sermon this morning, God at War for Us, and against us, for us. I, I, I want to point out that what, what was happening in Deuteronomy, what was being expressed in Deuteronomy, is answering the question for the people of that day, why is God mobilizing, benefiting, enabling the enemy to have some power over my life rather than Quickly fix it. Send them packing. Zap them. God is at war for us and at times against us for us. We'll see how this unfolds. But let me give you a couple, before we read the text, let me just give you a couple more introductory things that we're going to find out. And that is this, it's not new to you, but sin brings suffering to God's people, personally and collaterally, always. If you sin, you will suffer, but not just you, the people who are close to you will suffer as well. Likewise, obedience brings blessings to God's people, personally and collaterally. The people around you will be blessed by your obedience. But make certain we understand this, regardless, our covenant relationship with God remains intact, whether we're sinning or obedient. The relationship we have with Jesus Christ is a covenant relationship that he will not walk away from. Is that a license of sin? No. The truth of the matter is, the covenant with, we have with God through Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important that, that we know Christ as Savior and Lord so that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, nothing. So strengthen your heart and resolve on these truths. In times of distress and threats, 
and falling away from the faith. It's not what you feel about God that counts, but rather what you know about God that makes all the difference in the world. Having said that, because that's crucial, with circumstances being as they are, is not how I feel ever. It is what I know. That's why it matters what you know. And so today, from the text, I'm gonna look at four things. I'm gonna spend extra time on a couple of them, less time on a couple. Four things you, to, for you to know about God so your heart is in shape to pass the test. So let's uh, look in our Bibles at 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. You know, when I opened up my Bible to prepare for this, um, the, the title says, An Axe Head Floats. That caught my attention. It's not something you see every day. Anybody ever seen an axe head float? So I thought, you know, I should read this. This is pretty important stuff. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet, where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to live. And he said, go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the axe, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And the man reached out his hand and took it. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going, to, are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of the officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel that very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. <clears throat> when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. 
follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is the word of God. May he bless it, instruct us from it. Four things you need to know about God in this new ministry year that we have upon us. The story of floating metal. It's fascinating. Maybe it's just me, but whenever I turn to a text in Scripture, one of the first questions I ask is, why would God include this story? I mean, of all the things that are done and are accomplished, it seems like such a kind of an insignificant moment. Guys cutting down some trees, an axe falls into the river, the Jordan River. Granted, it floats, the iron floats, that's a big deal. But why is it included here? Is it, is it somehow to convince us that, that God is all-powerful and he can do anything? Because iron, heavy metal doesn't float in water, just does not. So, I mean, if, if we aren't convinced by now, getting to this place in Scripture, having read Genesis 1, 1, realizing that God created the heavens and the earth, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, I mean, surely God can do this. So, so to include this, uh, uh, just to corroborate the supernatural, powerful Uh, nature of God surely isn't enough of a reason. Well, maybe it's to give cred to Elisha as the head honcho prophet. If Elisha can call on the Lord, the Lord does great things for him like this, you know, all these company of prophets, the school of prophets, these guys are impressed and they'll listen to Elisha. You know, sure, there's some of that. But there's more to it than that. And, and we discover, I think, something very critically important about God and who God is and how he acts from this. Have you ever borrowed something from someone that you can't, some, something that you can't afford to replace? Perhaps you have, but, and then have you ever ruined it? That takes it a whole other level. Years ago when I first arrived here, or early, shortly thereafter, I borrowed a fancy snowmobile from someone here. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I drove snowmobiles back in the, the dark ages when they barely had any bells and whistles. They couldn't do much, you couldn't. But the new ones, like they got suspension, they have 
um, sharp objects in the track to dig into the snow, get like super traction. They, they, um, they can go in reverse, they can go very fast. The handles are heated, keep your little mitts warm. A group of seasoned snowmobilers had asked me to come on a journey with them. Yeah, I hadn't been on a snowmobile for a long time. They were going very, very fast, and I'm never one to be left behind. So I cranked that baby up, sailing across the flats, going way too fast for my abilities, and I got into a speed wobble. And that speed wobble at that speed without a seat belt, because they don't have them on snowmobiles, meant the rider was ejected from the snowmobile. So you're thinking, wow, that's horrible. Rick, you were probably badly injured. That's not my concern at this point. My concern was the visual that I had once I was thrown off the machine was to see this machine hurtling at great speed on its own with no driver. So I thought that might be okay because it will start to slow down until I realized it was heading straight for a tree. Oh, God, please. Veer it to the left, veer it to the right. But no, it was going dead straight. The tree was dead, six to eight inches diameter. This machine was going so fast, it took the tree right off. The damage was significant. The repair cost would be great. And I had no burgeoning bank account. You know what I'm saying? So when I read this story about this guy saying, oh my Lord, it was borrowed, those were kind of the words out of my own mouth. <laughs> I know how this dude felt. It's a bankrupt prophet living among a bankrupt Israel that was apostate and worshiping idols in a pagan nation that were enemies of the chosen people of God and of God. And the question that we're left with in this very small section is what kind of a God are bankrupt, apostate enemies dealing with? If you can answer that question, you understand the point, I think, of this text. Charles Spurgeon brought it out that in the New Testament, Jesus speaks only one time of his heart. Jesus speaks many times in the New Testament and gives us many commands and many descriptions of all kinds of things, but only once does he talk about the description of his own heart. It's in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to verse 30, and he says this, you probably already know it, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Now imagine that, if you are the God of the universe and you have only one statement to make about your heart, 
wouldn't you make certain that it was the very core description of who you are? That's exactly what Jesus did. Who are we dealing with in heaven? The God who is humble and lowly of heart and cares about the mundane moment of a bankrupt prophet trying to build a conference center where they could share the truths of God and couldn't afford to replace the acts that he had lost. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God you worship. He is merciful. Sure, he's powerful and great and all of that. But we already knew that when we read this story. What we learn here is that he cares about the minute detail of your life that is breaking your heart. Jesus is gentle, not snappy and saucy. Lowly of heart means humble of heart. You know what pride and arrogance is? It's people trying to show off their insecurities. They don't want you to know their insecurity, but they're showing off because of them. It's about competition. None of us should be proud or arrogant. This is, God is so amazing, he has no rivals. He doesn't have to show off. He doesn't have to compete. He is free to care and be merciful in the mundane. He is free to not be too big to feel the pain of this poor bankrupt prophet. That's why Jesus was so attractive to the down and outers, the ones who were pushed aside to the fringes of society because his heart was gentle and humble and he wasn't too big for them. He already knew who he was. I love that about God. And quite frankly, in this moment, when 20 years ago we were, we were pulling for each other, 20 years later we're fighting each other. Mercy is a distinctive mark of Christianity. Our God is merciful. But I see some other things here. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel, verse 8. It's a time of border skirmishes between Israel and Aram. Kept going back and forth. The Arameans, by the way, left us the language, the Aramaic language. Jesus was fluent in three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. The Aramaic came from Aram, the Arameans. The Arameans eventually became the Syrians, and we know them today as the Syrians, Damascus being their capital. There's interesting history, but we don't have time to cover it. The Old Testament is a series of international conflicts. 
which we've already understood from Deuteronomy is for the purpose of God pulling us back from our drifts away from him and from our spiritual insensitivity, our spiritual blindness. Sin brings suffering. We know that. And God had been making himself known to Aram, the enemies of God's people. We found that out in 2 Kings 5 last week where God mercifully and graciously decided to heal the commander of the forces of the Arameans. We also discover that, that God has, has given Elisha some sort of an international ministry with Aram and, and Israel. And spiritual drift is occurring among God's people, which always leads to spiritual insensitivity. And spiritual insensitivity results in causing you to be trapped in the immediate, in the physical, the things that you can see. And what happens when we start to drift away from God or we are, we are playing in the world of sinfulness is we lose our spiritual sensitivity to the things of God and to the power of God and to the word of God and to the message of God. We stop hearing him. And we think that the things that we're hiding are hidden from God. The king of Aram foolishly thought that somehow his battle plans were private. And he starts asking, you know, who are the traitors around here? Who's who's spilling the beans out there about our plans? Like, who's hanging around in my bedroom understanding what I'm talking about? Well, guess what? Everybody... Nothing's hidden from God. Nothing that you say or think or do is hidden from God. But when we get into a state of spiritual insensitivity, we, we lose all sense of that. And we, you know, what, what happens is what we see becomes all-encompassing in our lives, the physical things that are around us. We start to listen to preachers who say stuff like, if it is to be, it's up to me. That's not true. We start living like we are and, and our visible resources are all that there is. And, and we start to become unglued by the physical circumstances around us because, after all, that's really all there is. Shame on God's people to ever be there, but, but that happens. We go there. That's what was happening at this time. They're bowing down to the bales. God's people, the ones who had seen the miracles that he has done. We who know Jesus can so easily become trapped into all the things that are around us, and that's all we see. We, we, we think that all that there is is what we see. So the king of Aram, he can't figure out what's going on, but somehow there's enough recon between himself and his armies and Elisha that they, intel is being fed back and forth. Obviously, God is doing that, and The situation turns very dire because the king of Aram discovers where Elisha is and he goes, sends his army to surround Dothan. And it's it's fascinating what his, his servant says and it's not something that we might not say ourselves. You know, the servant looks there and he says, oh, my Lord, verse 15, what shall we do? So Elisha, you know, naturally as a shrewd leader says, well, 
go and count the army. See if we've got uh, enough strong men around. Go, go, go count the uh, weaponry and armaments to see if we've got enough, uh, enough uh, weapons. And go, go and create a, a, a victory pathway battle plan. And then when you got all that, bring that to me. Is that what Elisha did? Not at all. The longer you get in the habit of living by what you see, the less sensitive you are to reality. Christians should know this. That what we see around us is not all there is. We, we do know that, don't we? Could you nod at me from behind your mask? Because I can't see much. You, you, you know that, don't you? In spite of the fact that we're struggling to live like it, And the more afraid we become, because what we see scares us. That's kind of the way life unfolds for many of us. Elisha says, don't be afraid. If you could see what I see, servant, you wouldn't be afraid. And then he says, Lord, my servant has eyesight. Would you please give him vision? That's the problem we've got going on with our lives right now. We've got eyesight. But we've lost our vision. And so God allows him to have vision and to see what Elisha sees, to see, to see reality, not a dream, not an idea, not a concept. Lord, would you let him see reality? Because all he can see is what he sees with his eyes. That's not, that's not enough. That's not reality. Reality is the whole picture of God and all there is. If we could have our spiritual eyes opened this morning in this room. Blow our minds. And so he opens up his eyes and there's chariots of fire surrounding Elisha and the servant. He doesn't say it here, but I would have. You still afraid, buddy? I, I can never resist that extra dig, you know. The scriptures, there's, a, there's an important scripture that says, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. That word vision, by the way, is revelation, truth. Knowing God, seeing the world through the eyes of God, seeing the universe the way God sees it. That's what the vision there is. It's this. Where there is no ability to see the world that God is in, the people perish. 
That's why David could take on Goliath. Everybody else was looking at the size of the giant. David had vision and saw the size of the God who was helping him. Do we have this? God sees. And we should be asking God for vision, not just eyesight, so that we can see too. So we won't be afraid. Third, you know, in times of uncertain times, people need a sure thing. And God has given us a sure thing. He's given us his word. In, in verse 2, in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 16, verse 18, verse 22, the word of the prophet were God's words. Go, lift it out. He sent word. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Strike these people blind. Do not kill them. These are the words of God. More and more as we find ourselves tracking through the Old Testament, we see that God is connecting his actions to his word. That's an important reality for us. God is not unpredictable or or, um, spontaneous necessarily or inconsistent for sure. God has given us his sure word. And in times, in circumstances that are, are difficult and tough, we need a sure word from God. And God has demonstrated to us through his word, although he's free to do whatever he wants, he has demonstrated us throughout his word that he connects his actions to his word so that we can predict what God is going to do and how God is going to act so that we can have faith and confidence in times of trouble that God will act in concert with his character on our behalf. So the emphasis in the scriptures, the emphasis in these perilous times, the emphasis in these frustrating times is knowing God versus to feel or to imagine or to guess or even, yes, to experience. Because experiences can be manipulated by the enemy. The only way God's people will have confidence in difficult times is to be confident in their knowledge of who God is. You must know God. You must be walking with God so that you don't become spiritually insensitive. You must know God's word. What shall we do, he says to Elijah. What shall we do? What shall we do? What has God said? What do we know about God? Objective decision-making. The revelation of God is our vision. And finally, it is a curious ending to this story. Um, Elisha asked the Lord to strike the uh, guys blind. And then he um, tells them that this is not the right road and this is not the city. Follow me, I'll lead you to the man that you're looking for. And it was the man they were looking for who was talking to them. It's rather comical because God has struck them blind. They don't know any. They frog marched them into Samaria. Now, some of you are confused, saying, Samaria, Israel, I'm, I'm not understanding. It seem like different places to me. This remind you again that Samaria at that time was the capital of Israel. 
It wasn't a region, it was a city. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was not the capital of the whole, they, they were split. So Samaria, he marches them right into the, the very capital city of, of, of Israel. Here's Aram, the, the troops, the commander, all that, and they wake, they, their eyes come open because God opens up their eyes, and, and there they are in the capital of their enemy. And that's got to be an uh, alarming moment. And there is Elisha. What's he going to do? So the king says, should we kill them? I would say yes. Anybody with me? You're all too merciful. They've been pestering us. They've been, they've been fighting us. They've been taking uh, people and making them servants, slaves. They've been killing our brothers in these skirmishes. Yeah, kill them. Elisha's a prophet. He's not a soldier. He's not a warfare tacti- tactician. But here he, he outmaneuvers with God's strength the sophisticated military intelligence and brokers a cessation of hostility. From hunting for Elisha to being led into Samaria to be hunted where God leads him to be merciful and hospitable to his enemies. You ever wonder where Jesus got the idea? Love your enemies. Do good to those who abuse you and mistreat you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Could it be the same God who tells the king of Israel, no, prepare these guys a banquet, feed them, and send them back to their master? Why would he do that? The results of this are a cessation of raiding Israel. Now think about it, if they had slaughtered these guys, would that not have stirred up Aram even more to have an excuse and cause to fight Israel? But in God's wisdom and kindness and mercy and grace, he sends them back with full stomachs and a great time in Israel. God knows more than we know. God sees more than we see. I'll, I'll close with this. There's, a, there's an interesting story that always has confused me or uh, startled me, I guess, in Joshua, Joshua 5, where Joshua, the new leader of Israel, encounters a commander, an officer, standing before him abruptly. You know the story. And Joshua is alarmed, and, and, and he's, he's taken aback by the, I suspect, the glory of this commander, because it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. 
So Joshua asks him, it says there he's the commander of the Lord standing in front of Joshua. We get to know that, but Joshua didn't know right away. So he asks him, are you for us? He says, who, who, are, you, who are you for? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now, I've always, and you, you all thought as you were reading that story, by the time you got there, you were going to be, well, of course he's going to say, Joshua, I'm for you, man. I'm for Israel. Yeah. He says, neither. Neither. That's not what I was expecting to hear. Basically, the, the Son of God is standing before Joshua saying, I'm not some puppet soldier who's come here to mop up your messes for you. I'm the commander of the army of the living God. And the battle plan and the strategy and the tactics and the purposes and and, uh, intention is my prerogative completely. If I choose to be for you, I'll be for you. If I choose to be merciful to someone else, I'll be merciful to someone else. And you won't always understand what side I appear to be on. You know, we're kind of caught off guard. In 2 Kings chapter 1, God destroys 100 Moabite soldiers and spares 50 of them because they offer allegiance or at least recognition to God. In 2 Kings 5, we find out that that God chooses to heal the commander-in-chief of the Aramean army. Are you serious, God? And and we find out in the New Testament, not until the New Testament, that there wasn't one Israeli who was healed of leprosy during that time. Imagine that. God heals an enemy commander-in-chief of an army against his people and doesn't choose to heal of leprosy any of Israel during that time. And here we come and we arrive here and I I will deliver a whole company of hostile Arameans into the hands and into your hands and require you to be gracious to them. God uses the circumstances, uses the enemy of our soul, uses our enemies, uses anything he wants to to shape our hearts, to test our hearts, to humble our hearts over and over again. And that's what he's doing right now. Patiently perfecting. God has already won the victory. (laughs) He's not having to battle wars to win anything for himself. The victory's already won, beloved. Jesus has already conquered the grave, forgiven us of our sins. There's no more battles to win except the battle for our hearts. So Jesus is currently collecting and perfecting the spoils of the victory that he's already won. And this is not the final time of judgment yet. God's not judging the nations, final judgment of the nations. He's using the nations and collecting evidence against them for their final trial date. 
and in the meantime, working it out for our good. So the victory's already won. It's already sure. The war is to shape you and to shape me. That's why I entitled it that God is at war for us and against us for us. Father, thank you for your truth and teaching us. I pray, oh God, that we will embrace the truth and the reality of all that is around us through spiritual eyes of faith. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen.